Part 1 Chapter 1 Drew Winston awakened on the morning of her ninth birthday and realized that, somehow, everything had changed. She could feel it in the air as she sat up in her bed, rubbing her eyes. She and her mom had only lived in their small two-bedroom apartment in this old building for a couple of months, but Drew knew the place as well as she'd known any of the other places where they had lived. At night, she would lie in her bed, listening to the creaks and pops of the building as it settled in the cool night air. There were five other apartments in the building, and Drew knew all of the tenants. She could tell when they were home, when they were asleep, when they were arguing. She could close her eyes and sense it without even trying, sometimes without even wanting to. Drew knew she was unusual that her life was not like other children her age, but it didn't bother her. It was her life. It was all she knew. Drew, breakfast, her mom called from the kitchen. Drew didn't need her mom to call. She could smell sausage and pancakes and knew it was ready and waiting for her, but she waited because her mom seemed to feel it was more proper for her to wait until she called than when Drew just felt when it was the best time to come sit at the table. So Drew got out of bed and stretched and felt the wrongness that, now that she thought about it, had even managed to intrude upon her dreams. She got dressed in a hurry and went out to breakfast. Her mom had set the small table in the kitchen. There were pancakes, sausages, a pitcher of orange juice with a couple of glasses, and a bottle of syrup. Drew felt her mouth starting to water as she got into her chair. Good morning, her mom said, seating herself across from her. Happy birthday. She looked tired, Drew thought, but there was something else, and she allowed herself to violate her own rule about sensing her mother's thoughts and feelings. She felt sadness, deep, profound, like a hole that she'd stepped into and didn't realize until she was falling that it had no bottom. Falling, falling into a dark pit. Even though her mom smiled at her as she poured the syrup over her pancakes and got a couple of sausage links. Mom, what's wrong? Drew asked, digging in, unable to stop herself and feeling very hungry. Her mom paused in pouring her own juice. Nothing's wrong, honey. She finished pouring her glass and poured syrup over her own pancakes. Please tell me, Drew said. Her mom sighed. I'm sorry. I should know better than to hide things from you. She was silent for a long while, picking at her own food while Drew ate hers. Do you remember the talk we had about your father? You mean the fight we had about it, Drew asked. Her mom smiled in spite of the sadness she was feeling. Yes. You said I'd meet him one day, but until then you couldn't tell me anything about him, Drew said, taking a sip of her juice. You said you couldn't even tell me who he is. Right. Well, today's the day. What? Today's the day you can tell me about him? Drew felt excitement welling up inside of her at the thought of finally learning about her mysterious, absent father. It's more than that. Today is the day you meet him, and you leave me to go live with him. What? No, I don't want to live with him. I just want to know about him, Drew said. 
her mom smiled. We don't have any choice in the matter. Why not? I won't go with him. He'll have to get a lawyer or something. Her mom laughed once at that. Your father is a very powerful man. Giving you up on your ninth birthday was part of the bargain I made with him ten years ago. Bargain? What bargain? Her mom sighed, getting up and taking her plate to the sink and raking what was left of her pancakes, which was most of them, into the trash can. I was sick. I was going to die. I knew how to contact your father. He came when I called, and he made this deal with me. My life to give him a child. Save you? How? Is he a doctor? No. He's much more than that. Her mom came back over and sat back in her chair. There aren't many people who even know he exists, but he has saved humanity many times. He's the sorcerer, Drew. Are you feeling okay, Mom? Drew asked, though she could sense that, at least as far as her mother was concerned, she was telling the truth. My dad's a sorcerer? No, not a sorcerer. The sorcerer. There's only one. I don't understand. I know. But as part of our deal, he made me promise to teach you certain things, to raise you a certain way, and I've done everything I can to follow his wishes. You mean the homeschooling? Yeah, that's part of it. You needed to learn all the stuff other kids your age learn, but you need additional skills too. You mean like the memory exercises, Drew said. Her mom nodded. Yes, like those. You need to have a perfect memory. You need to be able to learn very quickly. You can do that. But what is he going to do with me? Where does he live? Will you come to visit? He's going to train you to be his replacement. He may not look like it, but he's very old, and one day he'll die. He needs, we all need, somebody to be able to step in and take his place. It has to be somebody of his blood. Nobody else will have the power. As far as where he lives, I don't know for sure, except he lives in a place that's not in our world. You didn't answer the question, Mom. Will you come to visit? No. I'm sorry. Tears started streaming down Mary's face and Drew could feel her fighting to stay in control. I can't go where you're going. Then I won't go. I won't leave you. We don't have any choice. I'm so sorry. There's no way we can stop him. We can leave. We can hide. He'll never... Yes, he will. He will. There's no point. He'll be able to find us no matter where we go. There was an air of finality to what Mary said that caused Drew to begin feeling sadness too and a new emotion she had never felt before. She realized that this is what despair must feel like. I'll be fine. I'll miss you. I'll miss you more than words can say. I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll survive. Move on with my life, just like you will. You're strong, Drew. Stronger than I hoped you would be. It will be hard but you will be able to do what he needs for you to do. Drew sat there struggling to find the words among the many that were going through her mind that were the right ones, the ones that she needed to say when there came a gentle knock on the door. Drew looked up and her mother was, impossibly, smiling through her tears.
he's here. Drew tried to form a plan as her mom went to answer the door, but she couldn't come up with anything that didn't involve running out through that door when her mom opened it. It was the only way out of the apartment except for the windows, and they were on the second floor, a bit higher up than Drew felt comfortable jumping. Also, running out would cause her to miss her opportunity to finally meet her father. So Drew followed her mother into the living room, hanging back while Mary answered the door. Hello, Mary, the man who was standing there said when the door opened. I must say you have not aged a day. Drew thought his voice was a bit deeper than she thought it would be considering what he looked like. Tall and thin, wearing an old-fashioned suit and a hat that she thought was called a bowler on his head. He doffed that hat and tucked it under his arm. He was also carrying a closed umbrella in spite of the fact that it wasn't raining and wasn't expected to rain for a long time. Mary stepped aside and he came into the apartment, Mary closing the door behind him, and for the first time in her nine years, Drew looked at her father. He would have been a handsome man if he smiled more, she thought. She imagined when he did smile, it was not something pleasant, but something ironic and possibly cruel. His thinning hair was blonde and his eyes were an icy blue. His fingernails were carefully manicured and, when he spoke with that surprisingly deep voice, his words were pronounced carefully, finishing each one before starting the next. Out of curiosity, Drew tried to sense his thoughts like she did with other people and, to her surprise, was unable to do so. He favored her with a slight smile when she tried and she knew he could tell what she'd done. The smile only involved one side of his mouth and didn't reveal any trace of amusement. Hello, Drew, he said. I'm your father. Hello, Drew said, and thought about it for a moment before adding, Father. She could see it a bit around his eyes. She had his nose and mouth and chin, and she felt she would grow up to be every bit as tall as he was. She is powerful, he said to Mary handing her his hat and the umbrella. Mary hung them on a rack on the wall next to her own sun hat and Drew's baseball cap. Let's chat for a bit, shall we? Please, Mary said, and Drew could sense the turmoil boiling inside her mother. Grief, sadness, pain, and perhaps relief. Let's all sit down. Mary sat in the easy chair, leaving the couch for Drew and her father, who was beginning to think of as Mr. Winston. Calling him father felt strange. He settled onto one end of the couch, sitting stiffly as if he were uncomfortable there, like it was unusual for him to be inside someone else's house, sitting and chatting. I'm sure you have questions, Drew, he said. Ask them now. Mom says you're a sorcerer drew asked and he sniffed and she knew that this was his way of laughing the sorcerer drew he said so you do magic and stuff drew asked indeed powerful magic magic you are quite capable of doing yourself when you have finished your training there's no such thing as magic drew said nonsense you do magic yourself all the time he said no i don't drew said Yes, you do. You don't even notice it because it's part of you. It's who you are. 
prove it, Drew said. To Drew's surprise, it was her mother who stirred in her chair, reaching forward and taking the television remote control from the coffee table and turning the TV on. She flipped through the channels until she found a show called Juan and Gabriella, Drew's favorite, a silly sitcom that she watched religiously. What are you doing, Drew asked. You love this show, don't you? Mary asked. You know I do. You don't have any trouble understanding what they're saying? No, Mom. Why would I? It's on Telemundo, Mary said. So? It's a Spanish language network. But they're not speaking Spanish, Drew said. Yes, they are, Mary said, smiling a little. No, they're not. I can't speak Spanish. Her father spoke at that. It is part of your power. You can understand any human language, spoken or written. You know the lady at the Korean grocery we buy stuff from sometimes, Mary asked? The one you always talk to when we go in there? Yes, I like her. She's funny. She also barely speaks English. You speak Korean with her. I don't, Drew started to say and then stopped herself. You have a great destiny in front of you, but you'll need to be trained, her father said. Your mother has prepared you, given you the basic skills you'll need. Now it's time for you to get trained in how to use your power. No, Drew said, I'm not going. I'm staying here with mom. No, her father said. He wasn't angry, she thought. He sounded like he was simply stating a fact. He got up and walked over to the rack where his hat and umbrella were hanging and got his umbrella. Mary got up. Drew, it's time. Drew got off the couch, watching her father open his umbrella. She turned and ran to her mother, who hugged her tightly. I'll always love you, her mother whispered in her ear. I'll always be thinking about you. Obey your father. Pay attention to what he teaches you, and you'll be fine. I'm not leaving you, Drew said, tears running from her eyes. Drew, it's time. She heard him, and she released her mother and turned to see him standing behind her, holding the opened umbrella over his head. She thought it was a bit silly. Even if it were raining, it wouldn't be raining inside. And he held it over her head, bending over slightly. He reached inside the umbrella, pulling it closed so that it would wrap around Drew. What? She started to ask before her world went dark. Chapter 2 Are you doing... Drew felt, as she finished her question, that it had been quite some time since she'd started asking it. Instead of the living room in her apartment, she was standing in a dark hallway. Mr. Winston stood next to her, tucking the now-closed umbrella under his arm. Drew glanced around. The floor felt like stone, cold and very hard to the soles of her shoes. There were heavy wooden doors every few feet along the walls on both sides, and lit torches hung from holders between the doors. On her left, the corridor seemed to stretch away into the darkness like it went on forever. The other side, it seemed to end in a room. Not a room, but a chamber, a big space. She could smell the hot, waxy scent from the burning candles, and she wondered who had been down here to light them, or if Mr. Winston had done so, done so himself before releasing her from whatever spell he'd apparently had her under. Where are we? 
How did we get here? Drew asked him. This is one of the lower corridors of Keep Margin Corps, your new home. It exists in a place that does not appear on any of the maps with which you are familiar. As to how we got here, I walked, carrying you in my umbrella. It was such an odd statement that Drew didn't know how to react for a moment. He reached over and removed a torch from a holder. Now we are going to meet a friend, he said, guiding her towards the chamber at the end of the corridor. Drew could sense something inside that chamber. She felt it was a vast, open space, and as she stepped over the threshold, she felt someone inside that room watching her. Not someone. Something. It was not a person. For one thing, it was much bigger than even the biggest person, she thought. She had the impression that it was gigantic, much too big to fit through the doorway into the corridor. When she came into the chamber, she felt she was standing on a ledge, and the floor over the ledge was a long way down, the ceiling very high over her head. The creature in that room, though, was tall enough to tower over her, even though it stood on the floor so far below. She could feel it looking at her, and she could sense its attention on her. She felt it was seeing not her physical appearance, but looking deep inside her. She felt that, in the few seconds it looked her over, it knew her better than anyone else ever had. It came closer, and she could hear a tinkling noise as it leaned over. It came close enough that its eyes reflected the torchlight from the torch Mr. Winston was holding as he stood in the doorway behind her. Those eyes were enormous, as big as basketballs, she thought, and were a couple of feet apart. The pupils were slitted like a snake's, the irises were red, and the corneas were bright yellow. Hello, old friend, Mr. Winston called. Greetings, Dwight, the creature said, its voice barely above a hoarse whisper instead of the big, booming thing Drew thought it would be. Is this she? Indeed it is. What is your assessment? She is very powerful. Who are you? Drew asked. Apologies. I should have introduced myself. I am the Goloth. Pleased to meet you, Drew said, remembering her manners. The Goloth blinked, and she saw his eyelids were covered with ropey, thick scars. To one side, she could barely see a hand with long nails at the end of the fingers, and the flesh of the fingers was also covered with scars. There was a heavy chain attached to a shackle on the wrist, which explained the tinkling noise she'd heard. What happened to you? Why are you all scarred up? Life. Pain. Learning. De Goloth said. He sounded very sad, she thought, though it was a deep, familiar sadness, one that he felt was only right and proper. Why are you chained up? To keep me safe from myself. Those strange eyes changed their focus from Drew to Mr. Winston. You have not freed her as of yet? I was waiting for your verdict, Mr. Winston said. She will become one of the most powerful of your kind in human history. She will make great discoveries, find ways to use her powers that others before haven't even considered. She will destroy her enemies. Is that all? She will live a lonely life. 
She will not know who her allies are, who her enemies are, and she will destroy those who help her the most. No, I won't, Drew said. The Goloth snorted, amused. That is, if you pass the first obstacle, he added. As usual, you say both no and yes, Mr. Winston said, also sounding amused. As it ever was, the Goloth said. So, what say you? Mr. Winston looked at Drew as if making up his mind for a final time. I think we'll proceed with their training, he said. Our lives are about to become much more interesting, the Goloth said. Come, Drew, Mr. Winston said, turning and leaving the room. Bye, Drew said to the Goloth, waving. Goodbye for now, he said, and she could hear the chain tinkling as the Goloth waved back. You are not afraid of the Goloth, Mr. Winston said. They were walking up a flight of stairs, and Drew was getting tired. She felt like they had been walking a long time in the dark after meeting the Goloth. The only light came from the torch Mr. Winston was still carrying, and in the stairwell the smoke didn't have anywhere to go, so it burned her eyes. No, Drew said, getting a bit short of breath. Why not? Why would I be scared of him? He's not human. He's huge. Most people would think of him as a monster. He is a monster, Drew said as he reached another landing. Mr. Winston paused, turning to face her, as if expecting her to continue. That doesn't mean that he's bad. Mr. Winston looked at her for a moment before nodding, and she felt as if he'd, she'd said something that pleased him. He used to be human, though, didn't he? Indeed, he said, turning and walking through the doorway on the landing. Drew, relieved that they weren't going to be climbing any more stairs for now, followed him into another corridor like the one they'd started in. This one was also lined with lit torches, and she felt that someone must spend almost all of their time keeping the things lit if this building was as big as she felt it was. You're right, Mr. Winston said, though I don't know the full story of how he came to be what he is now. How did he get into that chamber? He wouldn't fit through the door. How do you think? Mr. Winston asked as he paused in front of a heavy closed wooden door. Mr. Winston took a big key ring, which had a couple of dozen keys attached to it, out of his coat pocket and was sorting through the keys, looking for the one to fit the lock on that door. Drew thought it over then. When the answer came to her, it seemed inevitable. He was here when this place was built, wasn't he? It was built around him. Very good, Mr. Winston said, finding the key and unlocking the door. He pushed it open and stood aside, letting Drew go in first. It was a small room, cluttered, with something she thought people would call an altar. There was a dark cloth spread on it, with a small hand mirror, a knife, and a rectangular stone she thought might be used to sharpen the knife. There was another door closed in the back. Once more, there was light coming from a regular old light bulb in a fixture hanging at the end of a cord that dangled from the ceiling. She turned to see Mr. Winston coming into the room behind him. As she watched, the torch went out, just went out and he placed it in a holder outside the room. Then he stepped inside, closing the door. You heard the go-off say that I had not freed you, he asked 
going over to the altar and picking up the knife, looking it over, running his thumb along the edge. Yes, I wondered what he meant. When humans first evolved in their current form, they used to live much longer than they do now. All that changed when a parasitic organism evolved into a form capable of living off of human energy. These creatures are called astroids, and there are several for every man, woman, and child in existence. They drain your power, shortening your life and making it difficult for you to reach your full potential. Really? Drew asked, wondering if Mr. Winston was actually crazy. As if in answer, he picked up the mirror and held it so Drew could see her face. She looked in it and noted that she appeared to be really tired, but that was all. Then he turned the mirror around. There was another mirror on the other side, and Drew looked into it. She gave a small shriek. Her face was buried under slimy creatures that crawled and oozed into her nostrils, over her eyes, over her mouth. She had no idea that they were there until now. Get them off! Get them off! She screamed. She could feel her fresh flesh prickling with the horror of what she'd seen. That's what I'm about to do, Mr. Winston said, turning and placing the mirror back into the altar. He picked up the knife. I'll need you to be very still. She stood there and he started waving the knife in the air in front of her as if he were slicing through spider webs. He was humming quietly under his breath as he worked. Drew could smell something burning as he worked, like dust in a heater that had been turned off, per- turned on after being turned off all summer. She could also feel something strange happening. She started to feel power welling up inside of her, and as he continued cutting the asteroids loose from her, it grew stronger and stronger. When he stopped and stepped back, it grew even stronger. Drew had never felt so strong. She felt like she could flap her arms and fly. She felt like she could do anything. He took the mirror and showed it to her, but she didn't need to see her reflection in both sides to know that the things were gone. We need to keep them from reattaching, Mr. Winston said. He nodded at the door in the back of the room. Go in there. There's a bathtub along with some herbs and soaps that will keep them from coming back. You'll need to take a bath like that once a week. There are towels in there, too, along with an inkling to help you. What's an inkling? Drew asked. Servants. Our servants. I will let them one, let this one introduce herself to you, Mr. Winston said. Now go. Take as much time as you like. I will be here when you're done. Okay, Drew said, going to the door. It wasn't locked, and she stepped into the room, closing the door behind her. There was another light in this room with a big, thick rug covering the stone, cold stone floor. There was a basin with towels and wash rags and a mirror mounted on the wall and a thick robe hanging from a hook. There was a big bathroom bathtub against the far wall. It looked like it was made of copper. One corner of the tub was taken up with a small tray that had an assortment of soaps and some leafy twigs. Hello. The voice came from one of the corners of the room behind her, startling her. It was the high-pitched and a little reedy, and she turned to see what she imagined was this inkling Mr. Winston had mentioned. To begin with, it looked like a small person, not a child, but an adult who was tiny, 
no more than a foot or so tall. It was obviously female, she thought, wearing plain brown clothes and a small red cap on her head. Hello, Drew said. I'm Drew. I'm Lala, the inkling said. I'm here to help you. Okay, Drew said, not sure what she was supposed to do next. You will need to fill the tub with water. You can make it as hot as you want, Lala said, nodding at the knobs. To Drew's relief, it looked like every other tub she'd ever used, and she twisted the knobs, testing the water that came from the tap until it was the temperature she liked. There was a stopper, and she used it to plug the drain, and she turned. You will need to get undressed to get into the tub, Lala said. I know. Are you going to be here when I do that? Drew asked. I am here should you require any assistance. There is no need to be shy about undressing where I can see, Lala said. Okay, Drew said uncertainly. She started taking her clothes off as Lala came towards her, taking the clothes from her. Lala's arms were too long, Drew thought, as were her legs. She was also surprisingly strong for someone so small, taking the clothes as Drew handed them to her. Finally, Drew stepped into the water and sat down in it. The temperature was just how she liked it, and it felt surprisingly good. You must put the twigs into the water and let them stay there for a few minutes, Lala said. Once you begin to smell them, then you must be sure to get your whole body wet, even the top of your head. Then you must wash yourself using the soap. Be sure to get your whole body, including the top of your head and the bottoms of your feet. Then you can soak in the tub as long as you want. What are you going to be doing while I'm doing that? Drew asked. I'm going to wash these clothes for you, Lala said, unless you need me for something. I think I'll be fine, Drew said, taking the twigs and dropping them in the water with her. Lala nodded and left, going through the door and closing it as Drew settled into the water. The leaves on the twigs seemed to start giving off an aroma almost immediately, a rich herbal scent that she found relaxing. In spite of the huge surge of energy she'd been feeling before she found she was getting sleepy, she grabbed the soap and started scrubbing herself, getting the bottoms of her feet and lathering her hair and the top of her head, then ducking underneath the water and holding her breath as long as she could before coming back up for air, running her fingers through her wet hair to be sure all the soap was gone. Then she lay back against the back of the tub and closed her eyes, feeling herself beginning to relax. Lala, coming back into the bathroom, awakened Drew. She had no idea how long she'd been asleep and had no recollection whatsoever of dozing off, but the water was getting cold. Drew got out of the tub as Layla put her clothes, now folded neatly, onto a small table against the wall next to the door. Will you be requiring any assistance, Lala asked. Uh, no, Drew said. Then I have other errands I must attend to, Lala said, bowing before going back through the door. Drew dried herself with one of the fluffy towels on the basin. She could still smell the herbal scent of the soaps and other things that had been in the water. It was not an unpleasant smell, but it was stronger than she would have liked. After dressing herself, she came back out into the outer room where Mr. Winston was waiting, sitting in a wooden chair, reading a small book. When she came through the door, he looked up, closing the book, 
slipping it into his vest pocket. Well then, he said, how are you feeling? Hungry, Drew said. She felt like it had been several hours since she'd eaten, and as she'd mentioned being hungry, her appetite awakened in her belly like a sleeping animal. Yes, you'll be eating a lot more now that your power is no longer being sapped by the asteroids. He got up. Now we are going to begin your training. Can't we eat first, Drew asked. No, that would only prolong the first test, Mr. Weston said. He opened the door and waited there, waited there for her to pass him out into the hall. What are we going to do? What kind of test? Drew asked as he began leading her down the torch-lit corridor. It's simpler if you just let me show you, Mr. Winston said. They reached the door at the end of the hall, and Drew knew then they were going to be climbing more stairs. She glanced back up the corridor and noticed that at the far end, the torches were winking out. How, she started to ask as he opened the door. You'll find out how we light and extinguish the torches, he said, as he began going down the stairs. Drew followed, hoping that if they weren't going to eat, at least maybe they were going to revisit the Goloth. But this time, they only went down a couple of floors before he stopped on a landing and opened a door. Again, he paused and let her precede him into another torch-lit corridor. There is an inkling ahead, Drew said. How do you know that? I can feel him. It's a male. Inklings aren't human, yet you can sense him? Yes, but they are human, or they used to be, or they're part human, something like that. Good. He paused at another heavy wooden door and opened it. It wasn't locked, and it opened into a room a little bigger than the living room at the apartment where she'd been living. There was a low table against the far wall. Atop that table was a lit candle and a holder. Sitting on the table next to the candle was the inkling. The candle didn't give much light, so it took a moment for Drew's eyes to adjust. Mr. Winston came in and closed the door, going over to a corner from the table and the candle. Come here, she sa he said. Something rattled. A chain, smaller than the Goloff's, but substantial looking nonetheless. There was a metal collar at one end, and the other was attached to an eyelet in the stone wall. There was a tiny lock dangling from an eyelet on the collar. What are you going to do, Drew asked. Come here, he said again. Drew was tired, hungry, and knew from his tone that until she did what he asked, they would not be eating any time soon. She came over to him. Turn around, he said. She knew that he was going to fasten that collar around her neck, and she was right. She felt him lock it, and he stepped in front of her, holding the key. Stubby will have this, he said, walking over to the table and handing the key to the inkling. That, she decided, must be Stubby. Why are you doing this? Have I done something wrong? Drew asked. He came back over to stand in front of her. It is the nature of our power that each of us must come to understand it in our own way, he said. Once you learn how to use yours, your own unique way of channeling it and using it, I can train you. But you must make that first step on your own. This is the first test. If you pass, Stubby will release you, you'll have supper, 
and you'll begin your training in earnest. What if I don't pass, she asked. For answer, he turned slightly and nodded at the other corner of the room. There was a skeleton on the floor, chained up like she was. She felt like it was a boy about her age wearing outdated clothes. He'd been dead for a very long time, she thought, his body left here all those years. You will remain here until you pass, he said. If you don't pass, then you'll starve to death. Why are you doing this to me? Because, as of right now, you still don't believe you have the power, and that unbelief will be a hindrance. There's only one way to overcome it, and that is to put you in a situation where you must use your power or die. You don't care if I die. If you are unable to pass this test, you will be of no use to me. I will need to sire another child and start over. What am I supposed to do to pass this test? The test is in two parts. The first is you will extinguish that candle. The second is you will light it again. How am I supposed to do that? I can't reach way over there, Drew said. That's the point, Mr. Winston said. What happens if the candle burns out? Stubby has a whole box of candles and a box of matches. Stubby waved at her and smiled, and she knew that her thoughts of persuading the inkling to free her after Mr. Winston had left wouldn't work. Good luck, Mr. Winston left the room, and Drew settled onto the cold floor. What if I have to go to the bathroom, she asked. That's what the bucket is for, Stubby said, his voice slightly deeper than Lala's. There was, indeed, a metal bucket within easy reach. There was also a wooden bucket with a ladle sticking out of it. That bucket was full of water, cool and refreshing, she thought, as she helped herself to a drink. Apparently, she wasn't expected to die of thirst, at least. Do you know how I'm supposed to do this, she asked Stubby. There was a thin mat that she guessed was supposed to serve as her bed. She sat on it and didn't feel like it softened the feel of the cold, hard stones of the floor very much. There, These are matters beyond my poor perceptions, Stubby said, and she sensed again that the inkling found her really amusing. Drew took a deep breath and let it out, slowly, looking at the candle and trying to forget the hunger that rose up in her belly again. Fire, she knew, was energy. She watched the flame dance there a few feet away, and she tried to find some way to connect to it. There was nothing. It was just a tiny dancing light a few feet away. She felt, after staring at it for a long while, that it was laughing at her. Chapter 3 Penny was 12 and in the 5th grade. He knew his name was usually a girl's name. It was short for Pennywise, which wasn't much better and after years of being teased about it by other kids, he'd resolved himself to living with it. Another thing he lived with was his size. He'd been held back a year in school, and it hit a growth spurt, which made him several inches taller than the other children. While he'd heard many shorter people lament about having to look up, being the tallest person around was worse, especially for gawky, unathletic kids 
like Penny. Penny sat in the principal's office at his new school, waiting for her to come in, wondering if this would be the offense that would get him moved to yet another foster home or possibly some sort of orphanage or something. The office was small, cluttered, with framed diplomas on the walls and a picture of Miss Dixon, the principal he was waiting for, on the desk with her husband and three tiny and three children Penny assumed were hers. She could smell her perfume lingering in the air. There was a light floral scent that he was sure most people barely noticed, but to him it was overwhelming. He was thinking about opening the door crack to let in some fresh air when Miss Dixon came in through that door, closing it behind her, coming over to sit behind the desk. Hello, Penny, she said, leaning back in her chair and looking him over. She was afraid of him, he knew. She hid it well, but he could smell her fear underneath that perfume, stronger now that she was actually back in the room. Penny was taller than her and may actually be a little heavier, too. He knew she was aware of that and was wondering if she was safe from him alone in the office with him. Hello, Penny said. How is your hand, she asked. He held up his left hand, showing her both sides. You hit Tommy with your right fist, Ms. Dixon said. Penny sighed and held up his right hand showing the place on his knuckles where Tommy's teeth had left their marks when he'd hit him in the mouth. Penny had never hit anyone in the mouth before and resolved to never do it again. It'd be the eyes or belly from now on. Human bites are some of the most serious you can get, Miss Dixon said. I'll be okay, Penny said. Still, you need to have the nurse look at that. Aren't you going to ask me how Tommy is doing? How is he, Penny asked, realizing then that he had to seem to care or it would look really bad. He has a concussion. You didn't break his jaw, though. Good, Penny said. Why did you hit him? I don't know, Penny said. Yes, you do. Did he start it? Did he make fun of you? Well, yes, Penny said. What did he do? He called me a flamingo. Why? Is that slang for something? Miss Dixon asked. No, it's because I'm tall and skinny. And awkward, Miss Dixon added helpfully. Yeah. His parents are trying to decide if they're going to press charges. I tried to talk them out of it, but they were pretty upset. Okay, Penny said. You don't sound particularly worried. I don't want to go to jail, Penny said. Good. What do you want me to do? Showing some remorse would be a good start, Miss Dixon said. I'm sorry, Penny said. Just saying it isn't enough. You have to feel it. Have you called my foster mother? Yes, she's on her way now. That was the only thing Penny was actually dreading. Did she say she was going to call my social worker, Mr. Brown? She didn't say, but I imagine she will. I'll... Penny stopped himself before he could say what he felt then. That was always what got him into trouble since he was a child, he knew. Anger, blossoming into rage. 
blossoming into something he'd rather forget. He guessed if his mother had survived giving birth to him, or if his father were around, or if someone had adopted him, maybe he'd know more about how to control it when that feeling gripped him. But now it seemed to be a living thing, coiling up inside of him like a snake, and it was all he could do to keep it from striking. So far he'd been successful, lashing out instead with his flesh and blood fists, but one day he would not be able to stop himself from using that snake. He didn't know what would happen when he did that, but he knew it would be very bad. And life kept putting him into situations where the snake would get awakened, like the one with Tommy that had happened earlier that day, or the one that would happen when he was back home with his foster family. He was already dreading it. Penny, any more violent outbursts from you, and I will have to have you expelled. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am, he said. When Miss Briggs gets here, she'll take you home. The police may want to talk with you, too, depending on what Tommy's parents decide. In the meantime, I suggest you consider yourself lucky that you have not already been arrested for assault. You're a very fortunate young man, Penny. You've got a wonderful family and a nice house to live in, people taking care of you in spite of the things you've done. You keep getting chances. One day you won't get any more. Yes, ma'am, Penny said. It was not what he really wanted to say, but all he could manage that wouldn't get him expelled immediately. There was a quiet knock on the door, and it opened the school secretary, Miss Wilson, sticking her head inside. Miss Briggs is here, she said, glancing at Penny when she said it and scowling at him. It was a quiet, awkward ride back to the Briggs house. Miss Briggs drove, gripping the steering wheel tightly, not looking at Penny over in the passenger seat. She and Mr. Briggs had two boys of their own who went to that school. They were both still in class and would be getting off the bus at home in a couple of hours, and Penny didn't know which was worse, this quiet ride or what the Briggs brothers would do when they got home. I hope you're happy, Miss Briggs finally said, her first words to him since they'd gotten into the car. I had to leave work early because of this. I can't do this for you, Penny. I'm sorry, Penny said. Oh, you'll be sorry. The second having you in our home becomes more expensive than the money the state is paying us for putting up with you, Mr. Briggs will call your social worker and you'll be right back where you came from. Do you want that? No, Penny said. No what? No, ma'am. You have no idea how much we have to sacrifice to have you with us. There's so much we wanted to do that we put off just so we could take you into our home. Where would you be? You'd be in a detention center or an orphanage of some kind. I know, Penny said, watching the houses pass by as they drove down the suburban street, wishing she would just shut up. The snake tightened in its nest deep inside, coiling, preparing itself. He clenched his jaw, willing it to stay quiet and still. It wasn't easy. The only reason we haven't taken our trip to Europe is because Mr. Brown called and said that you were an urgent case and we have a reputation for being so good with troubled children. So out of the goodness of our hearts, we canceled our plans and took you in. And this is how you repay us? 
How about the money you get for letting me stay with you? There was an icy silence from the other side of the car. What did you say? Miss Briggs finally said. I said, I'm glad you did, Penny said. He knew she'd heard him the first time, but it was a way for both of them to pretend he didn't actually say what he did. Mr. Brown said, we're your last stop, Penny. If we don't keep you, it's a detention center for you. It might be a detention center anyway if that boy's parents press charges. I don't want the police showing up at my house, Penny. If they do, then that this is it. I don't want our neighbors thinking we're some kind of criminals. Penny's right hand had been throbbing since he'd hit Tommy, but it had been fading, and when he glanced at it, the tooth marks had healed a lot. In a few hours, they'd be gone, he knew. He always healed quickly, not that anybody ever noticed. To Penny, it was just one of the weird aspects of his life that set him apart from everyone else. One more thing, Miss Briggs said. That cat you've been feeding. Please don't, Penny said. We don't allow animals in our house, Penny. No pets. None. I don't even let Paul and Danny have pets. I'm most certainly not going to let our foster have one. Please let me keep her, Penny said. She's just a stray you started feeding. She has to go. We'll take her to the shelter. No, Penny said. No, you won't. The snake, he felt, was rearing back, ready to lash out, and he glared at her, feeling it in his head, in his eyes, pure rage building up, about to erupt. Ms. Briggs glanced at him and then looked away quickly, and he could tell that she sensed that she had crossed a line, that he'd gone from being angry and afraid to enraged and dangerous. We'll discuss it later, she said, and Penny felt the snake relax, disappointed that it wouldn't get a chance to strike. He could almost feel its smug satisfaction, though, like it knew that even though it didn't get its chance this time, it would very soon. Hello, this is J. Franklin Evans. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories That Suck. Did this story suck? Let me know.